This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Our hot question of the day has to do with your driving habits. So listen up. ICBC would like to install these little devices on cars so that they could track the habits of thousands of new drivers. We're talking volunteer new drivers. The reason why they're doing this is that their statistics show that there is a higher percentage of new and younger drivers who get into crashes than older, more experienced drivers. So they're hoping that by doing this, it will help them figure out what the problems are. Uh, Maybe there's something they need to emphasize more in testing. Maybe there's something they can help with more education or just signage or what is the problem? Why are newer and younger drivers something like three times more likely to get into an accident. Plus, they want to prevent some of these crashes, right? It costs them money. So we want to know, would you be willing to let ICBC uh, track your driving so they could, you know, provide you some feedback and suggest some improvements in your behavior? Like, would you want ICBC telling you, yeah, we saw what you did there. That's not a good idea. Like, are you okay with having them track your behavior? Would you say, yeah, so I could improve or no, I would rather not. That is our hot question of the day today. So you can check it out online at Sarah 980 You can also go to at CKNW. Let us know how you feel about that. I think it'd be different if they were doing this in order to give people a discount on their insurance. That's not what this is. That's kind of been floated. That idea is out there. I've, I've had people who tweeted at me said if it was for a discount, yeah, I'd line up for that. Uh, but it's not. It is just so that they can help study the habits of these young drivers and figure out why they statistically seem to be more likely to get into a car crash. So would you do this? Would you volunteer for this or not? You can let me know. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. And you know what? Uh, Call our buzz line with this as well. 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-289. It's a pretty simple question today. Would you be willing to let ICBC track your driving but not for money, not for a discount, so they could provide feedback and suggest some improvements on the way you're driving. You say, yeah, I would absolutely do that so I could get better. Or no, I would rather not. How do you come down on that? Let me know. You can also tweet me, Sarah 980 Get your comments in. We'll be checking back on that throughout the day today. That is our hot question of the day. Well, they're calling it a tabulation anomaly. But what it really means is that there's some graduating high school students who just a couple of months ago finished high school who are very nervous right now because they were left in some cases with marks on their transcripts that were much worse than what they had actually earned. This is a Ministry of Education error that may have affected thousands of students who took their provincial exams in June. And remember, those are exams that uh, definitely have an impact on the final transcript, which is needed for those applications to post-secondary schools. So the ministry is apparently now in the process of reviewing each and every exam result to figure out what happened. But tomorrow is the deadline. August 1st is the deadline for students to get their final transcripts in to post-secondary institutions. So obviously, a lot of nervous kids and their parents out there. In a statement to us, UBC says they are aware of the issue and they're making sure that if there has been an administrative error, they said in data reporting, that it doesn't have a negative impact on any of their incoming students. So if you're one of the people who have been impacted by this, are you feeling that stress? Call our buzz line 604-331-2899. We have heard from some parents on this already. For instance, Jane Illot, whose son 
just graduated from Walnut Grove Secondary in Langley. Her son is just a day away from needing to submit the copies of his final transcripts. It's been causing a lot of stress in their house. I had a chance to speak with Jane just before we came on the air today. Jane, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. First of all, when did you first hear that there was some kind of a problem? Uh, my husband and I were watching a TV program last night and his phone dinged and there was a media announcement um, saying that there was trouble with the provincial exam. So it was 9.30 last night. Um, again, it was just one of the media notifications that comes up on your phone. Right. We were both shocked, absolutely shocked. And it, it kind of explained a few things. Um, I thought my son's mark was a little low, but you know, Things happened, and the exam was, you know, quite a bit. It was 40% of his mark. But he passed, so we're like, okay, let's just move on, and hopefully we'll get those transcripts. And, you know, he is back east right now, so with uh, limited communication, so he doesn't even know about this. So it's, um, yeah, we were both shocked. How stressful has this now been for you in dealing with this? Well, he um, has been accepted to the Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario, and he is in Quebec right now doing basic training. So he needs to have his transcript in hand when he arrives. He is slated to go next Friday, but he's also in limbo right now because he doesn't have his travel orders. Because in order to have his travel orders, they need to have a copy of the transcript. So (laughs) he's kind of in limbo. He doesn't know quite what he's doing yet. So he can't get the transcript because he knows he's one of the kids affected, so you need a corrected transcript. Yes, and he doesn't know that he's affected yet. Um, When you're in basic training, you have very limited uh, communication with your family, which is fine. Um, I did speak to him Monday night saying, by the way, I've finally got onto the ministry um, website. It took me all day because the website kept crashing. Um, And I got his transcript ordered. We have sent it to the school, but again, with his orders, um, he needs to have an actual copy in hand when he arrives. So I've, uh, I asked for one to be mailed to us, yeah. and then hopefully, if it arrived, hopefully by next week, you know, fingers crossed, um, that I could FedEx it or relate it to him to make sure that he had it before he left. Right. That's a lot of that's a lot of hoops to jump through. That's just a lot of stress when you probably thought you were getting close to having all this settled. I was hoping. Yeah. I mean, especially on on Monday trying to get onto the ministry site to order it. Um I think I started at like eight o'clock in the morning and I don't think I got on to the site until four thirty wow. to actually order his uh things. That's yeah. crazy. Uh, what have you heard? It from- is insane. And I mean you can you understand, I mean there's the whole province is waiting for these marks. It's ridiculous. What have you heard from other parents at this point, Jane? I've, um, I've talked to a couple of other parents. They're, they're as stressed as we are. They're waiting, um, for their children to be, you know, make sure that they are getting into the university of their choice. Um, I have friends that are in UK right now and their daughter, um, who was achieving high nineties in her AP English course, ended up with a 66% um, on her exam, which brought her mark down considerably. Um, She is just beside herself right now. She doesn't know what to do. So thankfully, I was able to let them know that there was a mistake. But um, it's one of those things that you just can't, you can't help them, you know, it's, it's crazy. 
Yeah, and for the kids, how stressful for them this must be uh, because they're they're getting ready to start a new phase of their life, right? And it's kind of being put on hold and there's all these questions about it. Absolutely. And I mean, most of the universities, I think, need these marks tomorrow. So I'm I'm quite sure that the that the universities in BC will be understanding. It's the universities that are out of province or even out of country. They're not going to be so understanding um, because they don't have these provincial exams. Um, I know Ontario doesn't, um, so I'm not quite sure how that's going to affect you know the kids that are you know going to an Ontario or a Quebec university. Yeah. I know Callum has a girl in his class that was accepted at Harvard. You know, how is that going to affect her acceptance? You know, because they're waiting for these marks. This is this is really, really important. Yeah, it is. So have you heard anything at all? Like this must be impacting for parents, their summer plans, everything. Um, I haven't heard that, but I know a lot of parents are scrambling right now because they, you know, some of them who have put down deposits on... Um, student housing or, you know, you know, is this, is this going to affect that? And not only that, like, is it going to affect, you know, where they're, what university they're going to, Um, you know, if you've applied for a university back East and then, you know, you don't get in because, you know, your marks aren't there. How's that going to affect them? It's, it's, you're right. It's a huge, you know, pivotal time in their lives. So the ministry has a lot to answer for right now. Have you got, received any notification at all? Have you tried to get in touch with them? Like, how much information is out there? Well, the only thing that I, and again, I had to go looking for it, other than the, the media announcement last night, um, I did check Twitter this morning for our school district, and there was something up there. I have not been contacted by the school. I have not been contacted uh, personally via the ministry. And again, if I hadn't gone looking for it, would I have known about it? Probably not. I mean, you know, I, it was late last night when I saw the notification, and I usually, um, I heard it on the radio this morning as I was driving into work, but it, they didn't really give an explanation of why this happened or how it happened, so, and what they're going to do. Like, they said that they would notify um, post-secondary uh, universities, but they didn't say if they were going to notify universities outside of BC. Right. So that's so, a concern. Yeah, no kidding. So fingers crossed. Absolutely. Fingers and toes, I think. <laughs> I think you're right. I'd, listen, Jane, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Simi. It's Jane Illot, whose son recently graduated from Walnut Grove Secondary in Langley. They are, uh, as you can hear, frustrated by what has happened, what they've been hearing about in the last 48 hours, and they've got some deadlines to deal with. We're talking about the anomaly that the Ministry of Education says has impacted some transcripts of grade 12 students. They need those transcripts, right, to get into university, and those final marks are supposed to be submitted tomorrow, August 1st, to many institutions. Now, as we just told you, the Education Ministry says they have resolved the issue. They believe the revised transcripts will be posted today. It's going to be quite a rush for people to get them now. Uh, they are promising more details, quote, soon. 
But we also want to mention that the Surrey School District, school district that we have reached out to did provide us with some more information on this. They said they don't know how many exams are affected, but the ministry identified English 12 exam results as having an anomaly and potentially others. There were about 2,000 of those exams written by Surrey School District students. So you can imagine that's quite a few people when you extrapolate that to the other districts as well. So to talk more about this now, we're joined by Patty Backus, former school board chair and education columnist with the Georgia Strait newspaper. Patty, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me, Simi. Now, you've been tweeting about this as well quite a bit because it seems like the Ministry of Education hasn't really put out a lot of info on this. Yeah, you know, I look at it from a communications perspective. And once upon a time, I actually did uh, communications for a Metro Vancouver school district. And, you know, accidents and errors happen, problems happen. But the key in, in leadership is, is getting out in terms of communication, letting people know that there has been a problem and what you're doing about it. And if you have a timeline for getting it resolved. And in this case, um, to me, to put so many students and families in panic mode uh, without warning them when that could have been fairly straightforward to do, to be very clear and get out there publicly and to the news media to say there has been a problem. Please, you know, don't be alarmed when you go uh, this, this week to access your exam marks when you see that they're not what you expected. Instead, it's been kind of a reactive mode and information's been trickling out and organizations like UKNW trying to get information out to people as best they can when it really should have been the ministry's role to be right up front with this and and the minister in my opinion should have been out there assuring the public and students that this would be taken care of. Yeah do you think that's what happened? Do you think there are people out there in panic mode? Oh, I'm hearing from them and, and certainly seeing them on social media that uh, I think students had been made aware that this was the week they could access their marks and waiting and getting that information for their transcripts, the, the final transcripts to go to post-secondary. Uh, and, you, and you can just imagine many people are on vacation, they're not checking email regularly, they're not. And certainly for school districts, which seems to be the route that the ministry went to try to get information out, I know from working in a school district and being on a board in a school district is there's almost nobody there this time of year. This is when everyone's on vacation. Uh, so to expect school districts to handle the communication uh, it, in, the, in the middle of summer is, is not effective. Right. And this is the last year for provincial exams too, though, isn't it, for grade 12 students? That's my understanding. I'm not I'm not completely up to speed, so I don't want to give out any information that might be incorrect, but I believe that's the case. But I've, I, I've should check before I say anything further, but I believe that's true. Right. Okay. But how big are provincial exams? Like, you know, with, from your work in a school district, um, how big are these? How much of an influence do they have? Well, you know, for a lot of students who had really high, high solid marks, they get early acceptance. They may have locked down their, their acceptance to university by now, but there will be many that it's conditional on these final transcript marks and the transcripts aren't final. So they have those exam marks uh, as it stands. So for many uh, students going to universities, and some of them are going to universities outside of Canada that, you know, aren't going to be aware of this glitch. Uh, I don't know that, you know, the numbers and how many would be affected, but I'm certainly seeing on social media uh, people talking about institutions across Canada that, uh, and that BC is already slow in getting out these final marks that can create a challenge as it is. And then to add on to this, and I, my understanding is the corrected transcripts will be up later today, but there will be a delay in getting printed transcripts. So it's still going to be problematic uh, for students to, to get their paperwork in on time. Right. And the website itself, like we heard from a mom who was saying like it took her all day even to try to get the, the transcript that she could get on Monday. 
Yeah, it's, you know, they really need to be doing some some looking at how effective the ministry is on this one. This is, to me, kind of opened up a, a bigger problem in terms of uh, how accessible it is, uh, why they couldn't have information up there quickly once they knew there was a problem, so that when people went to that website to check marks, that there was could have been a warning right there that there was a concern about the accuracy. Uh, I hope that the minister, uh, Rob Fleming, will investigate this and that hopefully they will improve the system going forward. In your experience, Patty, and all the time you spent kind of within the school system, can you think of something like this happening before? No, <laughs> this is, uh, uh, I, I really can't. I, you know, I, I know it's always, when I was a school trustee and certainly chair of a board, having things go wrong over the summer is always difficult because there aren't the staff around to, to work through it. I remember there was the data breach case a few years ago, uh, but that was a much different different situation. But in terms of marks and transcripts that are so important for students to move into post-secondary, and it's already, you know, you know you're a parent, it's already a very stressful yeah, process. Totally. It is. Nobody needs this in the middle of the summer. So I don't recall anything like this happening, and I certainly hope it never happens again. Oh, yes. I think a lot of parents would agree with you on that. Patty, thank you. Okay, Simi, thank you. That's Patty Backus, former school board chair in Vancouver and also now the education columnist with the Georgia Strait. We've been getting updates on the manhunt going on in Manitoba for the last nine days. And as we just heard from Manitoba RCMP, they are scaling back those efforts. They are not completely stopping the search, but they are definitely scaling back a lot of the services and um, personnel that they have there. They will keep some tactical units, they said, in the Gillum and Fox Lake area. But it is definitely a big shift on this, as I said, day nine of the manhunt for the two suspects, Barsh Migalski and McLeod. Now, this all originated in British Columbia. There is still an investigation into three murders right here in this province. So let's get an update right now from the BC RCMP with the help of Corporal Chris Manceau. Corporal Manceau, thank you for being back with us. Hi, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Where are we at with the BC investigation? So the BC investigations are continuing. Obviously, there's still a lot of evidence to uh, uh, to process and things to send to labs and um, just a lot of the work that needs to be done should this uh, result in a court case. We need to make sure that all of our investigations are proper, make sure that all of our evidence is tagged properly, that everything follows the proper flow. Um, so a, a lot of behind-the-scenes police work that a lot of people don't see, and that's, uh, that's what we're working on right now while we uh, await the arrest of these suspects. Yeah, how does BC RCMP feel then about to hear that the Manitoba RCMP are scaling back the search? Um... No, I know Manitoba is working so hard uh, out there. They've been using every resource available, and um, they've been they've been fantastic. They really have. Well, we've got nothing but praise for them, and um, we understand that um, these types of investigations have to be evidence led. And if we don't have any uh, recent tips, um, eventually we do have to scale back on those types of uh, searches. So um, it's not a big surprise, but that's uh, for Manitoba to speak to. Um, we're just going to continue our work here and make sure that uh, we put out the best effort that we can. Is there still more information coming in here in BC? Are you still receiving tips on uh, the suspects and kind of their movements in this province before this all started? 
Yeah, we're still asking for people to, uh, if you have any, um, even dash cam video, or if you remember anything now that you've, you know, maybe come home from your vacation, maybe you did pass somebody that seems suspicious. Um, those tips are still flowing in, and our investigators here are working through those tips as well, and every tip is going to be investigated thoroughly. Um, we're getting tips from all across the province, whether they're accurate or not, or whether they're mistaken identities or not. Um, send those tips in to us. Uh, contact your local police. Uh, contact 911 if you have any thing they think is urgent, um, they will be investigated. We want to we want to get to the bottom of this. Are you concerned at all that the level of intensity surrounding this story might kind of die down a little bit? Because obviously that's driving a lot of the tips and information coming in. Um, I don't think so. Um, people want to see a resolution to this. I think this is going to be in the fore, uh, forefront of people's minds for quite some time. Um, it's not very often that we have triple homicides in northern BC with uh, identified suspects who are actively fleeing the police. So this is something that people are going to remember for uh, quite some time, and uh, I think that's going to drive this for uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, let's talk about the timeline then for just a moment here. Uh, to recap, what day were you? they absolutely declared suspects by the BC RCMP? When did you know that they were now suspects in these cases? So that was uh, July 23rd, so that was last Tuesday. Um, they were um, they changed from what I specifically said Monday, that they were missing, to Tuesday information came in, and that changed, and they became suspects. And were, was that information relayed to like other police forces across the country like right away? Yeah, as soon as we had that information, we had to let everyone know that they were no longer missing. Um, they were now uh, suspects in these homicides. And then, of course, changes uh, the perception of those, um, of the actions of the members. If uh, people, you know, go missing, sometimes they lose contact with friends, family, and, you know, they, they become missing. And sure, we'll make contact with them and um, make sure that um, people are notified that, you know, friends and family, that they're located Right. Um, are, are fine and safe, so that kind of lowers our threshold. But uh, going from a missing person to obviously uh, a public alert that uh, was pretty unprecedented in this, um, on a triple homicide, when that was uh, forwarded out to all members of the RCMP and municipal police forces and every law agency across Canada, that really did jump it up quite a bit. Was there a sense of urgency attached to that when that information was communicated? Like, did you think at that point that they might be on the move? Um, at that point, we just wanted to alert all police officers and law enforcement across the country that these uh, young men were now suspects in triple homicide, and um, that way that they could take precautions um, should they encounter these people. So whether they were on the move or not, we need to uh, disseminate that type of information um, you know, across the country to ensure that the police officers or anybody who would interact with them um, took uh, the right uh, level of precautions before they uh, you know, walked up to that car, you know, in the dark or what have you. Is there, when you look back now, was there any moment that you think anything that could have been done differently in this case, like the information comes sooner or relayed sooner? I don't believe so. Um, I know Manitoba spoke on that same question, and from the BC perspective, I think we put out the information as quickly as we could. We wanted to make sure that what we put out was accurate. Uh, we can't be speculating on um, you know, what the public uh, feels was, you know, maybe they should have been let know hours before. We have to make sure that the information that we put out is accurate and is timely. So I'm very proud of uh, the communication section here, the investigators that are working so hard up north, and how everybody came together as a team. And speaking of working up north, then, have, has the work at the crime scenes wrapped up? 
Um, they're still working um, on the evidence that is gathered. I do believe that the crime scenes have been released, um, but obviously the evidence that was gathered there we're still working uh, working with either in our labs or uh, with with the investigators themselves. Now, when we last spoke to you, Corporal Manso, the second-degree murder charges had been laid in the death of Leonard Dick, and you thought there might be progress soon when it came to charges in the deaths of Lucas Fowler and China Deese. Any update on that? I don't have any update on that. I know the investigators are still working hard on getting those uh, charges. At, at this point, um, you know, there are suspects in it, so it doesn't really change anything. Obviously, those two young men, they're still arrestable for uh, Mr. Dick's death. Um, so the investigators are working hard at uh, getting those charges as well. All right, Corporal Manso, thank you for your time. All right, thank you very much, Amy. Take care. You too. That's Corporal Chris Manso with the BC RCMP updating us on the investigation. And of course, the major investigation is happening here. The search may be happening in Manitoba, but the three murders, the investigation into all of that, what happened when, when this all started, it all originated here in BC. And it's- A couple of interesting stories out of Surrey to talk about this afternoon. One, we hear that the mayor, Doug McCallum, says he would like to seek a second term in office as he's got a lot of big projects on the table right now. And that seems to me a bit of an underestimation, right? Converting to a Surrey police force, a SkyTrain happening, among other projects. And he said he would like to see those through uh, with another, you know, four years, even though he's not even one year into this term already, saying he's going to run for re-election. And then there's the issue of CCTV cameras. We're going to talk about both of those issues right now with the help of Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Simi. I don't think I've ever heard of a politician saying this early on in their mandate that they're going to run again. I would agree. I mean, we're not even into a year of his term, of the four-year term. And yesterday, when I caught up with him at a news conference in South Surrey, the mayor told me that he has decided, right now anyways, that he will run again for a second term to see, as you say, the key projects that he has on the table right now, SkyTrain, moving from the RCMP to a civic force. He wants to see those through to the end, so he says that will need him to be on the job for at least another four years after this term is up. Here's more of what he had to say. I think it's important to recognize that with some of our major projects that we're moving forward with, um, some of them won't be built in in times. Others will be, but I think it's important to have a continuing emphasis on what the people of Surrey want, and I want to see those programs up and operating and and operating efficiently. So um, at at least at this stage, um, I'm saying that, yeah, I, I, um, I am going to run for a second term. It is early days still. You're only about a year into your term and then another four on top of the current four. Do you think you have the uh, the energy and the wherewithal to keep going? Well, I, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you on the energy, and you heard me say today in front of everybody that I'm up at 5.30 every day down here walking at Crescent Beach. I find that um, my energy is actually growing. I'm getting more energized every day as, as I move forward. And and um, it's a very exciting time in Surrey. And, and I certainly want to be part of it with council and with our residents to bring this city forward. And so that energizes me. And, and I've been a lot more energized each day going forward in the future. And, and so I'm not looking back. I'm, I'm only looking forward. So you would like to see your projects, uh, I'm sure the major ones, SkyTrain and policing, uh, finished, is that correct? Well, finished and up and, and operating. For instance, SkyTrain will probably take four years to build, um, and that will put uh, it in in the next term as far as Surrey Council. And I'd like to see it up. Um, there's a testing 
off SkyTrain that will be about a year. So at the beginning of sort of the next term, um, they'll be going through the testing of it together. And I'd like to see it up and running and, and making sure it runs efficiently. And the same for our police. Um, once we get the approval from the province, then um, it'll take a few years to do it. And then I'd like to see it up and operating for two or three years. So that would put us into the second term. So I'm, I'm in, excited. I'm energized. I, I feel great. And um, um, I'll, I'll certainly um, run um, for another term. That is Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. Now, Janet, I know he's not joking about the energy because he still play, He Ooh. also still plays tennis a couple of times a week. He's amazing. I mean, like he said, he's up at 5.30 walking uh, on the waterfront in South Surrey. And, you know, I've seen him uh, hightailing it to the SkyTrain. He moves at a million miles an hour. I yeah. can barely keep up with him as he walks. <laughs> and he, he moves quickly. He does. And he does have a lot of energy. And he's bang on when he says that. That's for sure. So he feels like he's he's uh, feeling well. He's in good health. So why not give it another term? Wow. Okay. And as he says, you know, he, he, he does put it in there that, you know, right now that's what he's decided. Who knows what another three years will bring or maybe if he'll decide to do something different. But for now, that's his decision. And, you know, go for it. Um, You know, it makes sense that he wants to see some of these big projects through to the end. That's for sure. That is true. Uh, One of the other big projects that now he's also musing a lot about is the potential for CCTV cameras in more locations in Surrey. This is something story that you brought us a couple days ago. Darlene Bennett, widow of Paul Bennett says that she'd like to see this happen. What did the mayor have to say about this? And you know, the mayor agrees with Darlene Bennett. Yes, the city of Surrey needs more CCTV cameras, he says. If it means catching the bad guys, why not? Here's what he had to say. Yeah, I think definitely. I I think that we can do. Cameras have been very effective, um, both in our traffic, but for safety reasons. Um, We have one of the best, for instance, in the traffic that monitor um, uh, traffic um, of any city in Metro Canada or in Metro Vancouver, and um, cameras to make our certain areas safe, I'm all for that. So um, I, I think we, um, when council comes back in September, I'll work with them to see whether we can um, look at putting more cameras out in some of our areas that um, people feel unsafe in being in. Right, okay, so that's a big project, Janet, because it's not going to be cheap either. No, it's, it is costly. And there's also the other element of privacy, the privacy impact. Uh, can that actually go ahead? Can the city of Surrey add more cameras? What is the impact? Uh, Surrey already has 400 or so CCTV cameras at most major intersections, Simi, but they are mainly for traffic flow that the city uses. Uh, but the RCMP can also access uh, that video if they need it for some of their investigations, and they have in the past. And there is also this city-run project called Pro. Project Iris, and that allows businesses as well as residents to register their CCTVs with this project through the city. So those are in place right now, but the mayor, Darlene Bennett, as you say, whose husband Paul was murdered in their driveway in Cloverdale over a year ago, feel that, yes, the city needs more of these cameras. And if anybody's ever been to the UK, these cameras are all over the place. And people say it has uh, resulted in the solve rate of crime being much higher than other countries that don't have them. Interesting. But yeah, where would you put them? And Surrey is so huge, Janet, right? Like, Yeah, where would you start? Uh, that's what I was thinking, too. Like, it's so big, so vast. And I don't know where you would start to make them the most effective. 
Well, I'm sure city officials would be able to uh, drill down and start that start the process of figuring out where they would like to have them. I'm, I'm sure that would involve a discussion of council as well, but it's going to be interesting to see if this can proceed, as the mayor says it will, in September after they have their August break. All right, we'll see. Janet, thank you. Thank you, Simi. That is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown. I don't know about you, but I have greatly enjoyed the weather that we have had so far this summer. Uh, not too hot, not too chilly, just enough rain, just enough sunshine. It's been great. But of course, not everything lasts forever, right? Everything good must come to an end. And it sounds like we've got some unseasonable weather on the way for us, particularly here in Metro Vancouver including a warning from Environment Canada. So let's find out what that is all about. Mark Madriga joins us now, Global News Chief Meteorologist. Mark, it sounds like the great days of summer might be over tomorrow. Well, for a short term, for a short time, Simi, yeah, it's quite an interesting little area of uh, sickening cloud. We see well southwest of BC and it's developing. And, you know, today we have a little high cloud, but it's really an intense front that's going to develop sometime tomorrow and it will spread uh, in from the southwest, rain will become heavy over the central and western part of Vancouver Island during the day tomorrow, and it will uh, sweep into Metro Vancouver sometime probably later tomorrow evening. It won't be long-lived, but let's say late tomorrow evening through the overnight period into very early Friday. As this intense front moves through, we'll pick up uh, quite a shot of heavy rain. It'll be short-term because it looks like it'll dry later Friday, but uh, between tomorrow night and early Friday, could easily pick up uh, 10 to 15 millimeters of rain close to the border and double or triple that closer to the mountains here in Metro Vancouver. It's really a strange little feature for this time of year, Simi, because this is typically the driest time of the year. Uh, statistically, it's, it, we rarely get rain late July, early August here in Metro Vancouver. And again, it's, sh- it's going to be short-lived, but it looks quite intense for tomorrow night. Yeah, and I'm wondering about how the ground at this point. As you mentioned, it's fairly dry, right? It's like we've had a little bit of rain, but not a huge amount. Can we take that much rain so quickly? Yeah, good point. That's something we're really going to watch here. Let's hope it, uh, the computer charts are overdoing it with the uh, rain forecast, because you're right, it, uh, that will mean some rapid runoff, uh, and it's yeah. going to come in a short time um, for tomorrow night, not only locally, but as mentioned on Vancouver Island, the rainfall amounts from our computer charts are, are in the 80 to 100 millimeter range on the west side of Vancouver Island tomorrow during the day for places like Tofino, and then it'll quickly end later tomorrow night there. So, yeah, we're going to see this in the news, I'm sure, with some localized flooding, but uh, it'll dry quickly, which is good. It's not days and days of rain. It's just a a short blast with this small but very intense system because uh, uh, later Friday, as mentioned, and through Saturday, Sunday, Monday, we're going to dry quickly and get warmer again. Okay, well, that's good. But how overall, how would you categorize the summer so far, Mark? Well, a lot of people are, are complaining openly to me when they what? see me uh, or any of us in the streets. You know, they're Why? saying, what a, what a lousy summer. No. I, I don't know. I think they, <laughs> they, 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 maybe they, it's just a select few that, that long for the two, uh, you know, past couple summers that have been so hot and dry. Of course, well, we had all this smoke. Maybe yeah. they forgot about that. But, uh, you know, people are maybe thinking this isn't the greatest summer. I think it's just been awesome. So we do had, I. Yeah, yeah, we've had our share of rain to keep things moist. The forest fire rating is is a lot lower. Uh, it, it's not overly hot, and uh, you know, not. I haven't had a sunburn yet, which is good. And <laughs> that's the barometer. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, but we've had some very nice days, and and I've just stepped outside here. That's why I'm on my cell. But I, 
you know, some cloud. It's just a beautiful afternoon with about 25 degrees. So, you know, my opinion is uh, this has been a really nice summer, at least in my book. I agree with you completely. I've been saying that to anybody who listened, that I feel like this is a typical Vancouver summer. The last two summers were abnormal, right? Yep. This one just seems right. to me like what, we're, what we normally have. It's perfect weather. That's exactly right. And the statistics are showing it. Our temperature's fairly close to average, but uh, rainfall amounts have been uh, very close to average as well. In fact, above average in a big chunk of the BC interior, so it's been wetter in there. But Good. again, that's uh, maybe that's where these people are coming from. They're, uh, maybe. They're, vacation- they're, they're, they're from the interior vacationing here because they have had some pretty uh, big uh, weather systems move through there with, uh, with uh, lots of areas of uh, heavier rain through the interior. But no, I'm, I'm with you. I've enjoyed this summer. It's just like uh, the many summers we remember. Soon. I agree with you, Mark. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. You take care. You too. That's Mark Madriga, our Global News Chief Meteorologist with a, a warning from Environment Canada for weather tomorrow. That, you know, when you talk about it, a short, intense, heavy rainfall, which is what they're warning about uh, for the Metro Vancouver area and parts of Vancouver Island, that is a bit of a problem in the summertime when generally the ground is pretty dry and you get a very heavy rainfall in a short period of time, which is what Mark is talking about. So that is something to watch out for tomorrow. The good news is, as he pointed out, it's not going to last. It's going to be tomorrow, and then things are going to get sunny and warm. And like, I, I don't know who would tell Mark. I'm shocked, actually, that people would tell Mark that they're complaining about the summer weather. I've told everybody that I think this weather is great. No, I can't tell you how happy we are to not have to do stories about awful wildfire smoke. And I'm sure people in the communities have had to deal with wildfire smoke the last couple of years are thrilled to not have to deal with it this summer. I mean, am I wrong? Have you been enjoying this summer? Like, do you not like this weather? Like, am I right? Mark Madriga and I right? Or are we wrong on this one? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. I'm quite puzzled by that, I have to say. Well, is Granville Island showing its age now that it's 40? And that's the question for many of the businesses that are based on Granville Island. There's been a lot of discussion about this recently. A report that was recently done in the TAI, which is the TAI.ca, uh, talked about how some of the operators there are concerned. They're worried the area is becoming gentrified. Uh, They want more control over the decisions that they feel are taken away from them. They think the artists and the businesses um, have a better understanding of what is needed to help Granville Island thrive. Uh, Pernilla Arnstead is a jewelry maker who works out of one of the retail and studio spaces on Granville Island. And she told our Linda Steele yesterday that Granville Island used to take a bet on the success of artists, but that is no longer the case. I know that uh, me and my studio partners, when we applied for this space about 19 years ago, we showed up uh, to a jury of our peers. Other artists uh, from the island were part of the jury. They looked at our presentation. You know, they talked to us. They asked, so what kind of colors would you have on the walls? You know, it was, you know, really, we got the space because they thought we would do great things. Mm-hmm. Today, you have to show up with a business plan. You have to show your income statement. It has turned into, I don't think we would be approved. We would, I think, today not get the space we are in. And I think that's very sad because Granville Island was always this amazing incubator where people who might not make a million dollars a year could develop their art and excite people who would come and experience that kind of art. Now, that's Pernilla Arnstead, a jewelry maker who works on Granville Island. And she says, you know, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which runs Granville Island, has good intentions, but she doesn't necessarily think they're the right people to be running an arts and cultural space. We are a little bit of a, uh, a nat- national cultural park 
for arts and culture. And um, I think it has to be managed by people who have experience and um, uh, expertise in how you manage arts and culture. Don't think CMHC is the right fit. It's a corporation whose main business is insuring mortgages, making sure that people don't get mortgages that are too big for them to pay. And they're doing a pretty good job with that. But running an island that is mainly devoted to arts and culture, that's a totally different creature. I mean, I, I would probably do a terrible job at insuring mortgages. <laughs> and, uh, and it's not like CMHC are trying to destroy the island. Not at all. They want to do a good job. But they lack the expertise. They really do. Okay, that's Pernilla Arnstead, who's a jewelry maker that uh, runs a space on Granville Island. So we wanted to talk more about this. Let's hear from all sides of the story. Sebastian Limpa joins us now, the Manager of Planning and Development at CMHC's Granville Island office. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks, Siri. How do you respond to what you heard there from Pernilla Arnstead? Um, well, uh, Pernilla is a, you know, a wonderful artist and um, is um, one of a huge community on the island of artists, artists, and it's a huge, it's so important part of the community and a part of why people come to Granville Island. It's, uh, Granville Island has uh, a, a variety of um, tenants and, and users, including you know, the, the public market, We've got concrete factory. We've got a hotel, a community center. It's such an eclectic ecosystem, and it's um, so we um, we uh, have a, a, a mandate to provide this mix of uses um, for um, for the city, um, and we also have a new vision, a 2040 vision, where we're looking to um, uh, make sure that we build on uh, the success of the past. Has so does the 2040 vision change how you determine who is allowed to have studio space on Gravel Island? Not at all. No, it's... Is um, it a different process or is it still the same process? No, it's... Um, so the the process for when we have a, a space that comes available, uh, we've, we have applications and we have... Um, and so the... And we have um, a, a leasing committee that um, uh, looks at the, the, the quality of the work... Um, for some of the tenants uh, that come onto the island, we have uh, third-party adjudication um, to make sure that there's that uh, quality that, that people expect. So the, the, the process for uh, getting space on the island is it's transparent, it's fair, it's, um, it's open to, to anyone that wants to have a space on the island. Has it just become more competitive? I mean, Pernilla mentioned there that she, it was 19 years ago when she, you know, auditioned to get her space. How much has, how much have things changed during that time? Um, in 20 years' time, I don't, uh, I can't speak to exactly how things were done 20 years ago. But, um, but today it's, um, we have a fully open process uh, for anyone that wants to um, be part of, um, that's interested in a space that's available. It, it, I should say that it's uh, we don't often have. That's what space I was going to ask. Available. How, what is the demand like yeah. for that space? Yeah, the the demand is can be very high. Um, the average um, te- the, the average length of um, tenancy on the island is more than twenty years. So there's not a lot of turnover. So um, if you, but if you go back twenty thirty years, there were new spa- spaces. Like for example, the space that. Uh, Pernilla's in, 
that was created about 20 years ago. We we built the R- Rail Spur Alley Studios with our own savings. Out of you know, we, Granville Island does not receive uh, government funding. Uh, we haven't since the 70s, and we we built those studios out of our own savings. And uh, that was um, a rare opportunity where we had those um, studios available. Um, and those, uh, un- and unfortunately, uh, those opportunities don't come along that often. How much influence is there from Ottawa on the direction and the plans for Granville Island? Granville Island is locally managed. So the, the CMHC office at Granville Island is um, we're staffed locally, of course, with various uh, with, uh, experts uh, in diff- different areas. And uh, the influence of Ottawa is, is pretty light. Uh, they, they weigh in on, on larger ticket items, like, for example... Uh, the the launch of our 2040 plan uh, is is a big one. The the um, creation of a new Granville Island Council is something that is being appointed by the minister that's responsible for CMHC. What is that? What is a Granville Island Council? So the so um, one of the key recommendations out of the 2040 report was to create a new level of governance over uh, for Granville Island, something that would bring local decision-making to, um, to help guide the decision-making and um, direction-setting for the island. And um, this is being implemented, and we're awaiting for the minister to make an announcement on the membership of a Granville Island Council, which will oversee the work of our office and help, uh, um, uh, help with us. Uh, setting the strategic planning for the island. What will that replace then? Is there, is that like a new level of kind of management? It's a a new level. And so then Ottawa can ask them questions about what's going on? That's right. So the, the, the idea with the council is that it would be that level between the staff level on island and the, and Ottawa. So it, it would be a new piece. Okay. You've talked a lot about the 2040 plan. You mentioned that a couple times there. What exactly does that involve? What kind of changes are we talking about to Granville Island? So the 2040 plan was a year-long process. We spoke with thousands of local residents. And what the community told us was, we love Granville Island. We'd just like to see more of it. We want to see you do uh, what you do now, but do more of it, and in some cases, improve on what you've got. So the, the, the big four strategies uh, in the report are to, one, make it easier for people to get to the island. Um, number two, build on the success of the public market. It's the, it's the most, um, uh, it's the, the top destination on the island. So expand the market if you can or, and create a market district. Three is to uh, embrace arts and culture and take advantage of some of the opportunities like the, the former Emily Carr building and create more um, opportunities for uh, newer artists and pop-ups, uh, pop-up space. Um, and four is to um, sustain and r- restore the public realm. So right. it's so important that people are comfortable walking around and, 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 and uh, enjoying time with uh, their friends and family. That experience that's, is key. That's been a huge issue, hasn't it? Because something that we've seen, I think, in recent years on Gravel Island is it is jam-packed. It is so full. And do you think, does that sometimes take away from people's enjoyment of the space? It would depend on the person, I guess. Um, Some people love crowds and some people don't. I'm sorry, Uh, who are these fictional people that you say who love crowds? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it's hard to imagine, but uh, it, it seems that people do like being around other people. It's um, uh, the, the the numbers of people that we see, uh, especially in the summer, are um, it's a mix of locals and out of towners. Right. Uh, at the peak of the summer, you, you might see half and half out of towners and and locals, but even the uh, the out of towners are often there with. Their friends uh, that live in town, so it's true. It's a bit I always of a, take relatives there. Yeah, it's it's so it's a bit of a, a gray area. The 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 notion of a kind of a, a, a quote unquote tourist. It's I we find it's hard to really nail down, given that you've got people that um, that there are on a, in a mixed group of right. there might be one local, and then you've got three or four out of towners. Very quickly, I also have to ask you, whatever happened to that idea of building? an elevator or a staircase off of the Granville Street Bridge so that people downtown would have easier access to Gravel Island? So that study is, um, we, we, we've just finished a jointly funded study with the City of Vancouver looking at the feasibility of having an elevator that would go from the, the bridge to Granville Island. Uh, the consultants that did the work, uh, they, they thought that it's technically feasible um, we know that the potential to increase transit uh, visits to Granville Island with an elevator would be huge, uh, but it's um, it's still at a conceptual stage. Obviously, there's lots of questions on the on how it would work at the the deck level with the city's plans for a greenway, and then of course the de- the development of it would be tricky. Sounds like the local council will be uh, busy on that. Uh, Sebastian, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Sebastian Lippa, Manager of Planning and Development at CMHC's Granville Island office. High drug prices are a problem in Canada. We know we talk about national pharmacare plan. That could very well be a big issue coming up in our federal election this fall because we think we're paying too much. Well, if we think we're paying too much, look at what they're paying down in the United States. Just outrageous prices for drugs that in many cases are much cheaper here in Canada. In the news in the last few months, we've heard about how these caravans of people are coming up across the border to buy things like insulin because it is so much cheaper here here in Canada. And now comes the news today that the Trump administration is saying it will set up a system to allow Americans to legally import lower cost prescription drugs from Canada. There had been a long-standing ban uh, that was a big priority for keeping that ban in place for the politically powerful pharmaceutical industry, but Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar made the announcement this morning. We think there's a real opportunity here where they can manage bringing drugs into the United States from Canada in a way that does preserve the safety of the American system. For decades, the response here at FDA and HHS has been, it can't be done. It can't be done. Don't send us your plans. Now we're saying, we think it can be done. Now, he himself is a former drug industry executive, that is the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, says that U.S. patients will be able to import medications safely and effectively with oversight from the Food and Drug Administration. So their proposal would allow states, wholesalers and pharmacists to get FDA approval to import certain medications that are also available in Canada. And this is part of the president's goal to decrease the cost of medication for Americans. Yeah, that's all fine and dandy. 
What about Canadians here? We have a a supply that we work on and it's our policies that have kept our prices cheaper. Can we, we can't supply, uh, you know, the volume of drugs in the United States. Is that going to mean that our drugs are going to be more expensive? Uh, Laura kind of summed it up in an email to me. She said, this is unbelievable. I hope the Canadian government steps in and puts a stop to this. The U.S. has put duties on Canadian products, softwood, lumber, steel, aluminum. When they say it hurts companies in the U.S., And now we see this happening. So those are all good questions that we're going to get to in the days ahead. Right now, though, let's talk with Sarah Overmall, who's a drug reporter at Politico in Washington, D.C. Sarah, thank you very much for joining this. Yeah, thank you for having me. How did this come about? Like, why now? Yeah, that's a great question, because this idea has been bandied about in Washington, D.C. for a very long time. Bernie Sanders has been a huge proponent of it, but it's never gotten momentum before. It really comes down to uh, President Trump. He's become fixated on this. He has a few allies, mainly the Florida governor, who have told him why this is a good idea and why it will help him with his voter base. And so he kind of drove this momentum. You mentioned uh, our health secretary, Alex Azar. Up until a few months ago, he was talking about how this is a gimmick that will never work. And now he's out here pushing this idea. So it really has been driven by President Trump and and his fixation on wanting to lower drug prices somehow in the U.S. Yeah, but why take Canadian drugs? Why not force prescription companies in the United States to change their ways instead? (laughs) Well, because it's a lot harder, I think. Um, It's, no, like you were saying, I mean, it's already a concern in Canada that drug prices are high there, uh, but it's seen to a lot of Americans as sort of an, an an easy option. It's a close country. It's similar market, similar regulation. Why not? But then, of course, when you think about it, the devil's in the details. There's all these challenges. The Canadian market is much smaller. Mm-hmm. You know, would the Canadian stock run dry? How do you assure safety? Canadian officials have already been very clear that they're not going to, you know, do more oversight on these drugs for American populations. They're going to take care of their own. So it really is once you get to the details of how to roll this out, this is why it's never really come to this point before because states have tried and they've never been able to figure it out. Right. Like in Canada, we have laws and policies that force, you know, generics, um, that those make sure that they get used. And in the United States, it seems like pharmaceutical companies just have way more power. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a fair way of saying it. And it's, it's also worth pointing out, too, the two um, ideas that were put forward today. One, like you said, would allow states, wholesalers, and pharmacists to try to come up with their own plan to import from Canada. And that plan, it's worth noting, they are not allowed to import any biologics, which means insulin would not be allowed to be imported. Really expensive drugs like arthritis medicines would not be allowed. So a lot of the medicines that are really burdening people would not be allowed on that list anyway. And then the second option would be essentially letting drug makers re-import their own medicines, but then why would they want to? What, okay. what would be the incentive for okay. them? So it really comes down to what's, what's this going to do? Yeah, exactly. So the devil is in the details on this. So this announcement sounds good from what you just said there. The actual cheaper drugs aren't a part of it. Right, exactly. Okay, so then what is the point then uh, of doing this? Do you think that's going to come across to people or do they just think, okay, this is great? That's going to be interesting to see play out because, of course, we're nearing um, a U.S. election. And I think part of this has to do with the president and his administration having run on this campaign of we are going to lower drug prices and a few of his other proposals, some of his most ambitious uh, plans to lower prices have failed in the past few months for one reason or another. So I think that this is one thing that he keeps returning to. His own party, the Republicans, have 
loath to this idea for years, but this is sort of one of the last tools he has in his toolbox to say, look, I am doing this right before the election year when really the rhetoric around this ratchets up and people say, what has he done? Yeah, I guess what I wonder about that is from us up here as observers of American politics, Sarah, we wonder, will anybody check, though? Like, it's one thing to say, oh, I did this, but will there be any oversight, you know, from the media saying, did anybody actually benefit from this? Well, I think that's going to be one interesting thing to play out, too, because on allowing states and wholesalers and pharmacists to submit their own plans, in a way, the federal government is putting the onus on those parties to answer those questions. And I was on a media call with Azar earlier today, and someone asked, you know, have you talked to Canadians about this? And he said, we're going to let those states and wholesalers talk to them. So that really sets the bar very, very high for those plans to work out. And it means that the federal government can say, look, we tried. If you guys don't come up with an option that works, that's not on us. So they're giving themselves an out. And it is going to be really hard. I mean, that means Florida is going to have to go to Canadian officials and say, here's how we're not going to ruin your market. Um, it's a pretty big question. Yeah, I would say that's a huge question. Because to <laughs> me, when I heard this announcement today, I thought, well, shouldn't this be something that's part of high-level negotiations between two countries? It should. And I think what's also interesting is that Canadian officials have traditionally said, we're not going to answer questions about this. We're not going to entertain this idea until it's a reality. Um, and now it's a reality. And it it is, you know, far in the making. It's not like this is going to happen tomorrow. They haven't even released these plans yet. States are going to have to come up with their, you know, submissions. It's, it's a year or two in the making at minimum. But it does, I think Canadian officials should be looking at this and saying, obviously, the appetite is there. The president is fixated on this. They want to see something happen. So maybe we should be taking this a little seriously. Oh, I think we should too. Listen, Sarah, thanks so much for talking to us about this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's Sarah Overmall, who's a drug reporter with Politico in Washington, D.C. Let's talk about your driving habits, shall we? We have a tendency to speed, to maybe be too distracted by our cell phones. But something else that we do that we shouldn't be doing is we go too fast through construction zones. And in fact, this is such a big problem that Burnaby RCMP are talking about it today. And for more on that, we're joined by our producer, Claire Allen. These stats that they talked about today are not good. Very surprising. So, Simi, you're you're a good driver, I would say. I've driven you know, with you. I'm, you've driven with me and I'm okay. But see, I would never want to say I'm a good driver because okay. I feel like knock wood. I, I would be proven wrong <laughs> the moment I leave here and somebody who listens to the show would see me and they'd be like, I saw you do that. You're not a good driver. I, okay. I will say, I feel that you are a good driver that obeys so. the rules of the road. So do you know what to do if you are driving and you encounter a cone zone or a construction zone? Yeah, you slow down. Right. Yes. Yes, Simi, you do. And according, according to the Burnaby RCMP, some drivers really need a refresher on what they should do if they are driving through a construction zone. Are you kidding me? Apparently, they've forgotten that you need to slow down, that people are working there, and it is dangerous if you are going fast. Okay, here's the thing. Have they forgotten or do they just not care? I'm thinking they just don't care. Well, I wasn't able to get to the bottom of that <laughs> in this interview, but I mean, that is a very good point. So I spoke with Burnaby RCMP. Corporal uh, Daniela Panasar, and she's told me what officers were up to yesterday. Our traffic members were out yesterday enforcing the cone zone. Um, the cone zone is um, their designated work areas. They're set up by roadside workers, and they're set up to protect themselves from the driving public. 
And so our members were out and enforcing those cone zones because um, the speed zone in those areas is dirty. And these areas are quite vulnerable for these workers that work in that area. So we're just out there to increase the awareness of these areas and encourage drivers to practice safe driving behavior. Really? Mm-hmm. They had a problem with people not slowing down in the construction zone. Yeah, so I guess there had been reports about people just whipping through construction zones, and the RCMP wanted to be there and patrolling the area, which was at uh, Broadway and uh, Gallardi Way in Burnaby. They wanted to make sure poli- uh, drivers knew that police take this very seriously and that, you know, you can be ticketed if you are not following the rules. And Simi, oh what I'm about to tell you, the amount of tickets they handed out, it may shock you. The one yesterday in particular was a construction area on Broadway and Gallardi, and there were 21 violation tickets uh, handed out at that time. Crazy. 21. 21. So uh, Corporal Panasar said that the average violator was traveling at a speed of 61 kilometers an hour. Now, Ooh. to refresh everyone's memory and what Simi said earlier is that you got to slow down because the speed limit in a construction zone is 30 kilometers an hour. So the ticket that the uh, the driver could get is um, for a ticket for disobeying a flag person, which is $196 for not obeying the sign that they're holding. But then I also thought, well, they're also going to get a speeding ticket too. So uh. that's double tickets for not following the rules. So you're saying, so they were going, the average speed was 61 kilometers an hour and they mm-hmm. should be going 30. 30. So that intersect, that area, Broadway and Gillardy, I remember it well. Mm-hmm. And people like, if they're going 60, I'm willing to bet you money. They already think they're going really slowly in that area because yeah. it's like a highway. They think it's a highway. It's they think not. It's fun. Yeah. But it's like the lead up to Burnaby Mountain and going up to SFU mm-hmm. and people gun it through there. Yeah. And it's really dangerous if people are working on the side of the road. I mean, it's just not safe. We've seen the campaigns out there saying that my, with the young child saying, my mom works here, my oh, dad works is, here. I Please find slow that down. so effective. Yeah. So, um, I mean, even. We, yes, you're right. They are maybe gunning it and without the construction being there, but with construction, it is uh, it, it, dangerous, very dangerous. So sadly, this is not the worst that it's been. Corporal Panasar told me about another time that Burnaby RCMP traffic ser- uh, services were patrolling a cone zone. Last week, they were um, at a location on Lowheed and Bainbridge, and that uh, yielded uh, quite a significant amount of tickets as well, um, somewhere in their area of 38 tickets. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. I know. I wanted to say that, but I didn't know if it was appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I think it's just that what it, the meaning of that is it's almost too It's too easy, easy for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They know that if they sit out there... Through no fault of their own, they're not trying to, you know, trap anybody or anything like that. They're they're just going to witness these violations one after the other after the other. So pretty crazy. And um, all you have to do is slow down. Exactly. People are going to get so mad for getting a ticket. We were talking about this earlier in the week when it comes to these intersection cameras and people outrage and the response from other people when I see it on Twitter and social media is. It's totally avoidable. Yeah, All you, you have to do is slow down. It is within your power. Yes. <laughs> to Move one foot from the accelerator over to the other side exactly. and you're fine. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And these construction zones, you know, they're not that, you're not going for kilometers and kilometers. It's usually just a short path yeah. that you need to slow down for. So obviously very troubling to hear about the amount of tickets that okay. are being handed out. And I asked uh, Corporal Panasar what advice you would have for drivers in construction zones. 
They need to slow down. There's, uh, like I said, there is uh, workers that are on the road. Um, it's a very vulnerable location for workers to be. So be mindful of where you're driving. And if you notice that you're in those zones, that you need to obey the uh, flag person that's in that location. So you know it's bad, Claire, when even the police are surprised by how many tickets they handed out. Yeah, of course. They actually tweeted it out today saying that they were just so shocked at the amount of tickets that they've been handing out for this, for something that is very simple. Slow down. There's someone literally holding a sign asking you to slow down and people are not obeying them. I get very nervous um, and I just feel like maybe that's happening as I get older. But if there's people on the road, like if even construction workers in the bright orange and the safety vest and all that, I feel like I have to slow down because... Yeah. I'm nervous. There's people on the road. They're right there. Of course. It, you don't want to hit anyone and nobody wants to get hit by a car. I mean, it's it's oh, it would be an awful collision if that were to happen. So yeah, I mean, definitely I would say for drivers, please heed uh, Corporal Panasar's advice and just slow down. It'll save you at least 196 bucks. Here's what Chuck says, though. Chuck mm-hmm. has emailed me on this and says, the reason drivers may ignore or become complacent when it comes to cone zones is because this entire city seems to be under construction, says Chuck. Show me one five-kilometer point-to-point route in the lower mainland, he said, that doesn't require us to drive through a cone zone. When will these ridiculous make-work projects stop? Uh, Chuck, I'm guessing they're not make work they're projects. Make work, you know, yeah. they, they, we, we, have a, we can only do this stuff in the summer. It's yes. got to be done. You're right. This is construction season. And I'm totally aware of that, that drivers, you know, it's tough to get around because of the amount of construction. But what is the alternative? Letting things fall apart? I don't yeah. know if people want to live like that. Exactly. Do you want potholes? Yeah. I mean, they were upgrading the Fortis, uh, the gas line. That, yes, that's that, a big one. Yes, that's where that was the Gillardy Way and Broadway. Uh, that's what was going on there. They're upgrading the gas line. That has to be done. You know, all I can say, Chuck... Thank you so much for listening, but maybe just plan, add a little more time, like give yourself more time to get where you're going. Construction is a fact of life. I it think is. that is definitely it. And we all have to slow down. Claire, mm-hmm. thank you. Thanks, Amy. That is Claire Allen, RCKW contributor, talking about the surprising number of tickets that Burnaby RCMP said that they handed out.